Good morning, church. It's great to be back with you here to share God's word out of the book of Ecclesiastes. If you'll turn there with me, we are looking in Ecclesiastes, uh, and we're in chapter 9 this morning. So Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and we're talking about, uh, y'all ready for this? We're talking about death again. <laughs> I know you didn't come to church to talk about death. You came to talk about life. But life and death, when we talk about one, we have to talk about the other. And the reality is for us this morning that as we gather and, and take up this subject again, this subject is meant to drive us towards Jesus Christ. When we talk about death, we remember that it's Jesus Christ who is our life. It's Jesus Christ that gives life. He gave his life so that we might have life, and he came to give us abundant life. But the reality is we all still have to think about, we still have to consider this topic and this issue of death. My first point this week is going to be, we're not there yet, but it's going to be, we're all, listen, we're all going to die. Uh, the truth of God's word states, I mean, the way we put it, we don't want to talk about death. I mean, the reality is we don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. When we talk about it, rarely do we even want to use the word death. We talk about sleep. We talk about going to heaven. We use terms like kicking the bucket or whatever else we want to say to help lessen the idea, the finality of death. But Christians, I want us to remember this morning that for us, death is a defeated enemy. That for us, because of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, just as we sang, death no longer has any hold on us because we're believers in Jesus Christ. But death, really, it's one of the things that most of us are most fearful about. If it's the one thing that we could prolong and stay away from, that is the thing. And for most of us, we, we wrestle with the fact that out of all the things we can know, the day of our death is the one thing that we can't know. I mean, sometimes we say and we think we wish like there was a clock up there that, that just gave us a running time, right? That we knew when the end would come. I don't know if that would give us any more peace. That'd probably be worse. But as we consider this topic this morning about life and about death and about the fact that unless we bring Jesus into the discussion, unless we bring God into the discussion, then listen, I can't imagine hearing the words that we're going to read on these pages this morning. I can't imagine listening to Solomon without having the hope that we have of, in Jesus Christ. And so as we begin this morning, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We talked about how we use the term kicking the bucket. I don't know about you, but the reason we use that term, again, is because it lessens the blow. We talk about kicking the bucket. You know what the reality is? Most of us would say because of the reality that we know death is coming and we know that death is inevitable for every man, you know what we tend to do? We tend to think of life in terms of a bucket list, don't we? Because we think before we do that, we'd like to make sure that we've done certain things. We'd like to be sure that before we stand before Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, the man who judges every soul of every man, we, we believe and we know, especially as believers, that there are things we want to accomplish, that there are things that we want to see done in our lifetime, in our family. Now, for some people, that list is very shallow. Some people, it's, you know, I want to see the Rockies or I I want to go and I, I want to see this part of the world or that part of the world. And it's not that that's not an unworthy thing. We ought to want to see the different things that God has created. But our, our list, I hope, is deeper than that. I hope that we've come to grips with the fact that not only do we have a list of things that we'd like to see accomplished, have you ever considered that God has a list of things, that he has things that he would like to see accomplished in you and through you while you have time because time is our most precious commodity, is it not? And so let's consider with Solomon. Really, there's two statements that he's going to bring out about life and death because he speaks to both of them in this chapter. And this is what he basically says. Let me give you the two overarching points and then we're going to talk about our four that really are the focus this morning. He's going to teach us and tell us 
in this chapter that, that, that death is inevitable. It comes to every man. It doesn't matter who you are. Death comes to every man. And we're going to talk about that because it is inevitable. But we struggle not just with death. Sometimes we struggle with life. And the reason we struggle with life is because just as much as death is inevitable, you know what's true about life? Solomon's going to say, I've watched it, I've seen it over and over and over, and that is that life is unpredictable. Most of us, if we had a choice, we'd want a predictable life. We would want to know that one plus one is always going to come up to her. If I do A plus B, I'm every time going to get C. We want some guarantee that we're going to win, correct? That's the way we think. That's what motivates the heart of a person. That's how we move forward in life. But what we're going to find is every bit as much as death is inevitable, life is unpredictable. And so he asks the question, how do we deal with those two facts? There are four reminders that he's going to give us. As we contemplate life and death this morning, and I want to go over these with you. There are some great truths in this scripture. Don't let a cloud settle on you today because of the subject and the matter with which we're talking about these issues today. Because I promise you, there's hope in these verses. As we talk about the unpredictability of life and the inevitability of death, there is hope because of Jesus. In chapter 9, he begins... For I have taken all this to my heart. So he's saying, I've thought of this. I've, I've been contemplating this. I've been chewing on this. You know, it, it's something that seems to be consuming Solomon. He's watching and he's trying to understand and he's trying to, to get life. And, and he says, I've taken all of this to heart. He says, for I've taken all this to my heart and explain it that righteous men, Wise men, in their deeds, guess where they are? They're in the hand of God. Uh, now, folks, that alone ought to bring you hope. That everything in this world, you know where it actually rests? It rests in the hand of God. I don't know about you, I'm glad it doesn't rest in Aaron Wallace's hands. Mike Lyles, you glad it doesn't rest in your hands? Every time anything I even perceive to be in my hands, I mess it up. I screw it up. That's the story of my life. I don't have the wisdom, I don't have the knowledge, I don't have the love, I don't have the patience. I am grateful that everything in this life doesn't rest in my hand, but literally it says he wants us to understand those of us that are godly, especially those of us that believe our life is in God's hand. He says man doesn't know whether it will be love or hatred. And listen to this statement. Anything awaits him. How many of you have a life that has gone exactly the way you thought it would go? I mean, I'm going to be real honest with you. I didn't know Wendell existed until I came here 20 years ago. I'd never heard of it. If you'd asked me where I may go preach one day, I'd have said, oh, I don't know, Tampa, Lakeland? You know, maybe Orlando, maybe Georgia, you know, Atlanta. I mean, I'd have named off a million places. You know where I would have never named? Wendell, you know why? I didn't know anything about Wendell. I didn't know what awaited me here. I would have never guessed the blessings that would have come into my life because God took me to this place that I didn't know, but he knew. And that's the story of most of us. We look back on our life and we would say, we had no idea what awaited us. God knew. It's in God's hands. God's in control. And listen to what else he says. And here's where it gets tough because he says, and it is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice, and for the man who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner, and the, and the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity. Insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. Now, that's some heavy stuff right there. Because number one, what he says is just what we talked about a minute ago. Everybody kicks the bucket, right? Everybody's going to die. That, that is an inevitability. And when we think about why death comes into this life, it, it really is a simple answer. Uh, you know, Melly and I have had this conversation over and over and over and over again 
Because one of the hardest things that I have to do as a pastor are, are funerals. And there's nothing more tragic than a funeral for someone who is not a believer. But there's also, in many ways, it feels like there's nothing more tragic than the death of a godly man or woman, a person who we would say is good. They're following Jesus. They're serving Christ. And, and we see a, a death of a believer, especially at a young age. I think of a Judy Beov. I think of a, a Steve Johnson. I, I, I look at those situations and I want to ask myself, I almost, if I'm not careful, I want to look to God and almost lay at his feet some unfairness. Where were you? Where are you? God, why would you allow this to happen? And folks, as much as we wrestle with those questions, Mel and I were just talking last night, the answer isn't very far from us. We're that close to the answer. We know it in the depths of our heart because as believers, we know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we know is that death is inevitable. Why? Because every single one of us in this room are sinners. The Bible puts it this way, there's no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who is good. The only reason we can be concerned or, 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 or termed good is not because of our righteousness, but because there was a time when we gave to Jesus all of our sin and he died for it on the cross. And he took our sin and he gave to us his righteousness. Folks, if there's anything good about me or if there's anything good about you, it's actually not about you, it's about Jesus. And what he does in and through you. That's the only reason any of us could say that we are good. The reality is that in and of ourselves, we all stand under the sentence of death. It is, listen, it has been appointed to man once to what? Once to die. And then the judgment. When you go to the grocery store and you start looking at milk, what's the first thing you look for? <laughs> an expiration date. You don't know it, but you have an expiration date on you. Again, I wish God would just throw it up on the screen sometimes and just tell me. Give me a hint. He doesn't do that. You know what he says? He says, be ready. Because one of two things is going to happen in this life. Either death is going to sneak up on you when you weren't expecting it. Or Jesus is going to come back when you weren't expecting it. And you know what he actually says? Be ready in either circumstance. Be ready to stand before God, live your life. You say, how does death help the believers? It's a constant reminder that there is a coming moment when Jesus is going to be there and we're going to be standing before him face to face. And I don't know about you, but there are many times in my life I, I question, am I really ready? If Jesus came back right now, right this second, would he find me being faithful? Can I say like Jesus because... For Jesus, I mean, he did live in that awkward thing where he did know exactly when he was going to die. He knew why he was going to Jerusalem. He knew what would happen to him there. He knew when it would happen, how it would happen, why it would happen. And I don't know about you, but I, I want to be like Jesus, that at the end of my life, I can say, Father, be glorified in this. I have done everything that you have asked me to do. Because you see, when you get down to it, that's the bucket list. I want to leave this earth knowing that I've done everything that Jesus Christ has asked me to do. That I've made the most of the life that he's given to me. Because folks, that's why thinking about and looking at and talking about death is something that we should do rather than sitting back and avoiding the topic as if it doesn't exist. Good people die alongside what we would term evil people. The reality is the only difference is Jesus in us. Here's the question. I know most of you in this room, if I were to ask you, can you trust Jesus with your life, you would say yes. Yes. I can trust him with my life. I can trust him with my future. I can trust him with my job. I can trust him with my spouse. I can, you know, when we talk about the things of life, we're so quick to say, yes, Jesus, I trust you with it. Let me pose this to you. Have you gotten to the place that you trust Jesus with your death? That's a little different, isn't it? The when, the why, the how. The reality that 
when he says it's all in God's hand, that includes you. And that his will is good. And his will is pleasing. And his will is perfect. See, we got to deal with it. we got to come to grips with it. I love the story of Jim Elliott. One of the things when you read Jim Elliott's biography and autobiography is the fact that you know, Jim Elliott knew he was uh, one of our missionaries, and he was there, I believe it was in Ecuador, if I'm not mistaken. And he was going to reach the Aka Indians, and these were a group of, of basically cannibalistic tribal people groups that were in the deep jungles. And he prepared and planned and picked up his family along with other missionaries to go and to reach these people groups for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that his life was in danger. He knew that when he flew into these areas, they couldn't even hike in. They had to fly in on these small planes. When he was going to fly in, his son, who was a teenager at the time, looked at his father and asked him, did he have a way to defend himself? And he was shocked by the answer of his father because his father basically looked at him. Jim Elliott said, son, I'm not going in there to defend myself. Son, if they take my life, I'm not going to kill them so that they can't take my life. And you can imagine as a young boy, the son is looking at him confused. You know what his father said? He realized what Solomon is getting at here. Jim Elliot looked at his son and reminded him that, Son, I have Christ. And if I lay down my life on this mission field, and if my life is taken by these Indians, then I'm going to be fine with that because I have conquered the grave because of Christ. Because of what Christ has done, I'm not worried about that last enemy of death. And you know what he told his son? But those people that we gave up everything to reach, if I take their life, I have destined them to hell. Now, see, we can sit back all day long and look at this story and say there was an injustice. We can look at God and say, how could you take the life of Jim Elliot and leave the lives of these pagan uh, tribal people that, that killed him? But you know what actually happened that day? Exactly what the son feared took place. They landed the plane. When they began to try to communicate with the Indians, they, they took out their bows and their arrows and their spears, and they killed those missionaries right there on that beach. The Bible's interesting because it's, it's always true. You know what the Bible says? It says that when you take a seed, it must die, and then you can place it in the ground, and then what happens? That's when it grows. You know what was amazing about Jim Elliott was? You would look at his life and say, what a waste. That's not God's economy. No, Jim Elliott's life was in God's hands. And you know what God actually did through the death of Jim Elliott? His wife and his son were able to come back into that village. And though those men had taken the life of the man that meant the world to them, they came back, they still preached the same gospel, and they told of the love of God, that God loved them so much, he gave his own, his own son's life so that they could be forgiven. And just as they lost their husband and their father, God lost his son, he died so that they might live. And through Jim Elliott's death, you want to know what happened? His family went back and led that tribe to Jesus Christ. And you see, church, when are we going to realize? And again, I don't have a death wish. I'm not looking to go walk in front of a bus tomorrow. But you know what the reality is? I do want to get to the place where I can be like Paul and I can say to live as Christ and to die as what? To die as gain. I want to believe in the depth of my being that this actually isn't life. That this actually isn't home. I want to believe with all of my heart that what awaits me so far exceeds what I am living today. I want God to get me to the place that I can say, yes, yes, I have a lisp. I'm glad Melanie wasn't here for that one. <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. 
I want to, <laughs> stop looking at me. I want to <laughs> believe with all my heart. That God's promises are true. And that when I close my eyes here, that's when I really start to live. That I'll never know sin or sickness or suffering ever again. And that no matter what, what God calls me to do, no matter what God asks of me, I'm willing to say yes because I know that he holds my life in his hands. And folks, the reality is when things are at their worst, that's when we have to cling to Jesus. I can't think of anything worse that we face than the last enemy, but the reality is we have plenty to be hopeful for. Number two. This is a truth that we all need to realize. You can't check off the bucket list after you kick the bucket. Let that sink in a second. Uh, sports are tough for me because I get like sick gut watching sports. I don't even care if, I mean, I even care which team wins. But there's something about all the drama leading up, you know, when they're just back and forth, back and forth, and the clock keeps ticking down, keeps ticking down. And that last shot, some people live for that last shot, it makes me want to vomit. I'm not even playing. And there's nothing worse to me. Then when it gets to the very end of the game and you see a guy get open, right? And he goes and he takes the shot and you realize at that moment that yes, he took the shot and you watch it go in the basket. But you know right then, he took it too late. And they replay it and sure enough, the buzzer's gone off. He was there in the right place at the right time, but he took the shot too late. I fear that's what many of us are doing in our life. Tomorrow, later, tomorrow, another day. Not realizing that we don't have the benefit of a clock that's running down. How easy is it to do when we can see the clock? How much harder is it to do when we can't even see it? And he says, be ready, be prepared. Make sure that you live this life to the fullest of your ability in Christ now. He goes on in verse 4 and says, For whoever is joined with all the living, there's hope. Think about that statement. If you're alive, then what is there? There's hope. That's why Jim Elliott said, If I die, it doesn't matter because I have hope. But if they die, there is no hope. Folks, while we have today, there's hope. If you're breathing today, your marriage can heal. If you're breathing today, your relationship with your children can heal. If you're breathing today, you can repent of the sin that has ensnared you. If you're breathing today, you can say yes to the things that God has been telling you for months and for years that you have been ignoring. If you're alive, there is hope. And he's saying to you, if you're alive today, live life to the fullest. I believe that most of us are living this life and we're not living with the end in mind. And so what that makes us do is it, it makes us busy doing the wrong things. Most of us are busy and I don't think there's anything wrong with busy. I think the scripture points out that work is something we should do. God called us to do. God ordained us to do. He told us we would work six days and then we would have a day of rest. He wants us to build. He wants us to do all the things that we do in life to subdue the earth, right? It takes work. The question isn't, are we busy? The question is, are we busy doing the right thing? Building the right kingdom. Realizing that the greatest time that we spend on this earth isn't in projects or in buildings or in things. You know what the greatest time, the time best spent, you know what it's actually time doing? Relationship with people. Making disciples with people. Loving the family that Jesus Christ has given you to love. Disciple the family that Jesus Christ has given you to disciple. To be part of the church body that God has made you a unique piece of. To fulfill his command of the great commission. To be his witness. God doesn't just say do anything. He has things that he wants you to do. 
the hard, cold, sad truth is that for most of us, if not all of us, we are spending a great deal of our time diligently and persistently working on things that don't truly matter. And we don't have a clock. We don't even know when to throw up the last shot to Hail Mary. And folks, that's not the way God called you to live anyway. Make the most of every opportunity of what he called you to. What he called me to. To live this life for Christ. To die to yourself so that Christ can live in you. Thirdly. This one, I hope, changes the mentality of the way some of us are living today. The way that we think about God, because thirdly, joy and blessing are on God's bucket list for you. Did you realize that? There are many people that walk around this world, their thought of God is he's up there on a throne and he's ready to just strike you dead. You make a mistake, he's going to come down like thunder. Uh, the idea of most of us in our minds is that God, uh, he doesn't want to give nearly as much as he wants to take away. That for me to be holy means I can't do this and I can't do that. That we think that if we're going to live in a right relationship with God, we have to give up anything and everything that would make life fun or make life good or give us joy. Or get, and That's how many people live their life. They look at their Christianity with drudgery. It's drudgery. It's painful. Not realizing that that's not at all what God has for us. From the beginning, God wanted us to know pleasure. But he is the author and definer. And he is the one that tells us and understands and knows what true pleasure is. He knows the difference between something that is good and right and holy and will lead to joy and blessing. And he knows that you can take that same thing and pervert it. And you can take something good and you can ruin it. And let it ruin your life. Most of us, we have the mentality that, that somehow God took sex and now it's kind of ruined. That's the way the world would say you can only have sex with one woman or one man for one lifetime. Folks, if you do what God asks you to do when it comes to sex, you will know what love truly looks like. What commitment truly looks like. What loyalty truly looks like. What faithfulness truly looks like looks like. God is not trying to steal joy from you. He is trying to show you that his ways are perfect and his ways lead to life. And rather than all the heartbreak and all the brokenness and all the mistrust and everything else that comes into our lives because we don't want to believe God on something as simple as sex. God's not trying to rob you of anything. He's trying to give you joy. True joy, blessing. He knows what happens to us when we steal from each other. He knows what happens when we lie to each other. He knows what happens when we mistreat each other. He knows what happens when we don't take care of each other. He knows what happens when we think of ourselves only and not another living soul. The reason he tells you the things that he tells you is he knows the secret to life. And that is to be like himself. And folks, we've got to decide what true happiness looks like. Because most of us would say, I mean, I've watched people literally walk headfirst and off a cliff into sin the whole time saying, the reason I'm doing it is God wants me to be happy. And above all, God, and, and, and they've taken even that truth and they've perverted it. Because let me tell you where happiness is found. Happiness is found in holiness. Holiness. 
That's why I tell you, God's not taking anything from you. He's given you everything. He's given you life in his words. He's given you life in his commands. He's given you life in his laws. He's given you these things because he knows that they lead to life. And if you are holy, then guess what? You are going to be happy. If you are unholy, if you are living a life opposite and outside of what God has commanded and asked you to live, you are a person most miserable. And I don't want you to think because you're miserable, God caused it. We caused it. We fell. We sinned. We ignored. We stiff-armed God and said, thanks, but no thanks. I know better. And God the whole time is saying, return to me. Repent and follow me. Because for us... He has life. Now, if you don't believe it, then what do you do with the Beatitudes? Because the Beatitudes, the first thing out of Jesus' mouth as he began to preach the gospel and the kingdom to those that would follow him, I want you to remember what the heartbeat of his message was. He says, let me tell you what the kingdom of God is like. I want you to be blessed. Blessed. I mean, we just studied this when we were at camp this week. If you went to Word of Life, this is what they studied all week long. The Bible teaches Jesus out of the gate. He comes at us with... I want you to be blessed, and let me tell you how to be blessed. Let me tell you and show you what the blessed person looks like. The blessed are the poor in spirit. For they and they alone will inherit the kingdom of heaven. You know what it means to be poor in spirit? He says you can't find joy and true happiness until you realize the reality of your situation. That before God, you have sinned. Before God, you stand condemned. Before God, you can't undo what you've done. No amount of good will outweigh the bad. Even your righteousness is like filthy rags before God. And until you realize how utterly destitute you are spiritually before God, you will never take a step towards forgiveness. And then he says crazy stuff like, you know, you're blessed if you mourn. See, that's the thing. We want God to just say, you're blessed and be done. Blessed are the happy. That's what we'd like for it to say, but that's not what it says. He turns around and says, blessed are those that mourn. Why? Because they are the only ones that will be comforted. You'll never change the direction and course of your life. You'll keep living in sin, which will destroy you and ultimately kill you. You'll never change the focus and direction of your life until you start to mourn over sin. You won't stop something until you mourn over it. And he says you're blessed when you mourn. Because then you stand before God and you seek his forgiveness. And this utterly destitute person spiritually sits at the feet of Jesus and he mourns over his sin. And God's not up there going, away from me, I hate you. You, you, you make me sick. No, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Shall be saved. And what we find is those that mourn before God over their sinfulness, they and they alone are the ones that will be comforted. And he goes on and says, blessed are the meek. And he goes on and says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. God puts within us this desire to do what is right and good and holy. The righteousness that we have put on in Christ, the, the righteousness that he gave us from Calvary. He took our sin, he gave us his righteousness. We put that on and positionally we're changed, but practically our hearts are made new and we want to follow Jesus. We hunger for righteousness. And he says, you know who's blessed? Those that do that. Blessed are the merciful. They and they alone receive mercy. The same mercy you get, you give. And he says, you know, I mean, think about it. We think happiness is holding a grudge. No, that's misery. Happiness is when you realize how much God's forgiven you and you learn to forgive others and give them the grace that you've received. And when you start to live like that, you think it makes a difference in the joy that you have? You think there's joy in being a peacemaker rather than a gossip and a slanderer? Than being the pot stirrer? You think there's something to the person that wants to make peace that brings joy to their life and the lives of those around them? And he goes as far as to even say, 
Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they and they alone will see God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He says there's two things you're going to be persecuted for or you're going to face trials for. Either the things that you did sinfully, which that's one thing. It's another thing if you're persecuted for doing what's right. I can tell you this. When I'm persecuted for doing what's right, when I do the right thing and yet persecution comes... I can lay my head down at night and sleep with joy and with peace. But if I lay my pillow down at night knowing that everything I've got coming I've earned, it's not very peaceful. Grace. Grace is an amazing gift that God gives us and His grace is meant to lead us to a joy that we can't fathom. I love the way Matthew 6.33 puts it. It simply says later on in the Sermon on the Mount, the very next chapter, he says, if you want to know what life is, if you want to know what blessing is, if you want to know that life is good, he says simply this, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else takes care of itself. Those two things, seeking his kingdom and his righteousness, those two things are what lead to joy. And blessing, and it's what God intends for you. That's why he says, go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time. That means always be prepared to live life and to party. That's what it means. Whenever you'd go out and go to a celebration, you'd clean up and you'd put on these white clothes, these pure clothes. After you showered and got all the stink off, right, you'd go and get ready for this big celebration and you would anoint your head, put on cologne, we would say. He says, God's not up there trying to kill the party. What's God trying to do? Well, let me put it this way. If you need a little help, let me, let me make the connection. In the prodigal son... Is God trying to kill the party or throw the party? He's throwing the party. Because the son that was dead, the son that was lost, he's come home. So what are we going to do? Kill the fatted calf. God's not killing your party. He's throwing it. He says, let your clothes be white all the time. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life. He's saying, don't miss the importance of what I said a minute ago, relationship. <laughs> you're just busting it at work and you're busting it at this, that, and the other. And, and listen, for me, it's not as much work. You know what it is for me? It's, it's stupid things like my yard. You know, there's a balance. I mean, you, you want your yard to look nice. You don't want to hurt everybody's value around you, right? But, I mean, literally, if I could, I'd stand out there with a bag and catch the leaves as they fall off the trees. That's how stupid I am about it. And all the while, I got two kids that would probably love to spend time with me, and I'm out there trying to get every leaf off, leaf off the yard. We consume ourselves. God has more. He says, enjoy the life with the woman that he's given you. Because your life is fleeting, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is the reward in life and your toil in which you have labored under the sun. And then lastly, he talks about life. He says, don't get discouraged. The fourth point is don't get discouraged because life is unpredictable. It's easy to get discouraged when life is unpredictable. The way that he put it was, he said, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, which is the grave where you are going. So he says, make the most of your life today. Whatever you put your hand to, when you know what is right, do it. And then when you start to do it, do it with all of your might. Do the things that matter most with all that you have, is what he's saying. Why? Because time is fleeting. He says, once you go to the grave, it's too late to do it. But listen as he goes on. He says, I again saw under the sun. And he, here's where life is unpredictable. 
listen to this statement. He says, I saw again under the sun that the race is not to the swift. That means he's simply saying, let me put it in plain English, the fastest doesn't always win. I've seen him, we're like, well, wait a minute, that don't make sense. And then it says, the battle doesn't always go to the warrior. So he's saying you can have the best army with the best weapons, but you know what it doesn't guarantee? It doesn't guarantee a victory. Is that true in life? Yeah, you better. I mean, have you ever worked in an office where you think, I think the dumbest guy is the guy that's the boss? I don't know. That's probably not appropriate to say in church, is it? But can I get a what, what, an amen? I mean, we all know that, right? We're going to be real, right? Have you ever worked your butt off for a promotion that you just knew that you had? And you put in all the years to the company, and you were the right person for that job, and all of a sudden you found out Susie, who is the boss's wife's sister, gets the job. And she's not even qualified or able. Sometimes that's how life is, isn't it? You can have the best team. You ever watch a game where you know it's going to be an absolute murder because of one player on the field, and they think that it's locked up. They're looking at the Super Bowl ring. They know that it's theirs, and on the opening kickoff, that player gets his leg broke. In the whole season, in the game that would have just been a shoe-in, they lose. the unfairness of asking a team that's trained and played in Florida for the last three months or six months or six years to find out they've got to go play the Super Bowl in sub-zero weather against the team that is used to playing football, guess what, in sub-zero weather. <laughs> There's no planning for that, is there? Folks, that's how life is. He says, neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to the men of ability. And listen to this statement, because this can throw you off if you're not careful. It says, for time and chance, overtake them all. It's because we don't understand the word chance in Hebrew. It means an occurrence. It doesn't mean we think chance, we think rolling dice, we think gambling or something, right? That's not what this verse is talking about. What he's saying is that you don't understand what time and occurrence, what will happen in life, you don't see it. God sees it. God knows. But you don't. And the reality is, we've got to get to the place, just like we are able to handle death, we're able to handle the unpredictability of life. Because while you may not have control, God does. While you can't see around the corner, God can. And just as much as we say, listen, sometimes we're on the receiving end of grace, aren't we? Sometimes we're the ones, I'd say most of the times, where we don't deserve the win. We don't deserve the gift. We don't deserve the blessing. But God shows up out of nowhere and smiles upon fools. Isn't that true? Can we trust God with His ways, His timing, His plans, His ways? Because I'm telling you, when you get older, you realize this is absolutely true, that life doesn't work this way. We were raised to believe if you play by the rules and you give it your all, you're going to win. Well, sometimes you can do that, and guess what happens? You lose. Have you taught your kids that? They need to know that. <laughs> Everybody don't get a trophy. But let me tell you this, there is great value and having the long view of life. Because you know what happens in the long view of life. Ultimately, God says, everything that you do, let me give you the New Testament version of verse 10. It basically says, everything that you do, do it for the glory of God. When you do that, you're living for the long view of life. That means that you know it doesn't matter what happens here, because sometimes here the fastest doesn't win. Sometimes here. You get bumped when you should have been placed. But I want you to know that there's going to come a day when the God who sees it all and knows it all 
is going to judge everything rightly. And all that's going to matter in that moment is us hearing the words, well done. And folks, you have to decide, can you accept a little less applause, a little less victory, a little less whatever you want to call it on this earth, knowing that it actually is repaid in heaven? Because if not, life's going to be tough. If not, you're going to go through a lot of depression. If not, you're going to have a lot of struggles and a lot of trials. Because we need wisdom. That's how we grow. That's how, if you want to say, let me put it this way. We don't need to win as desperately as we need wisdom. The secret to life isn't always winning. The secret to life is learning how to live wisely in unpredictable circumstances. In things that are out of our control. That's what we need. And he finishes, that's the story at the end. He said also in verse 13, I came to see. Well, actually, let me look at verse 12. It says, moreover, a man doesn't know his time. Like fish caught in a treacherous net, birds and snares, uh, the son of men are ensnared in an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. He says, I came to see wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. So he says, I watched this, and it impressed me. There was a small city with a few men in it. A great king came, surrounded it, constructed a large siege work against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not, were not heeded. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of rulers among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Let me tell you, let me sum up what he's saying there. Everybody agrees, all the scholars that he's saying, that there basically is a village, a small village that has been besieged by a mighty king with a mighty army who is determined to destroy this village. In that village, there is a wise, poor man. A man that most wouldn't look at and ask advice. A man that most wouldn't go to to seek wisdom and how to stop a king who's about to destroy the city. But this man has a plan. This man has a wisdom that he wants to give to the people of his village. But you know what the problem is? They won't heed it. Uh, when I read that, that, that is a lot of my life, day in and day out. We think we need more knowledge. We come to the pastor because we think he's going to tell us something that we didn't know, something that is going to change everything and rock our world so that we can keep doing what we want to do. They're, they're waiting for me to give an out. They're waiting for me to give an excuse. They're hoping against hope that I'm going to tell them something differently than they already know deep down in their heart. Most of us, myself included, you know what our biggest problem in life is? It's not what we do know, don't know, it's what we do know and aren't doing anything about. Most of you already know today what it's going to take to fix your marriage. The question isn't, you know, what new knowledge do I need? The question is, will you take the knowledge you have and do something with it? Because every day your friends have told you what to do, your teachers have told you what to do, your pastors have told you what to do, your grandma has told you what to do, and they've laid it out biblically for you and told you exactly what God expects. And at the end of the day, you know what happens? The same thing that happened to this old man. Most of them looked at him and said, thanks, but no thanks. And we bypass wisdom. And folks, you need wisdom far more than you need to win. That's what makes life doable, is when we live with wisdom. And you say the ultimate question as Kevin comes is, where do we find wisdom? Well, let me tell you where we find wisdom. Wisdom is like time. You can't buy it. Wisdom is one of those things in life, you don't stumble upon it. You don't actually, you know, most of us think, well, we gain wisdom through experiences, this, that, or the other. Even that's not true. It's not through experience. It's not even through hard work that we gain experience. This morning in our quiet time in Paul David Tripp's book, New Morning Mercies, if you don't have it, you ought to get it. He actually talked about this very issue of where do we find wisdom, and what he said is dead on right. You know what he said? He said we find wisdom when we're finally rescued. 
and in a personal relationship with Jesus. You know, there's truth to that. Because until you've been transformed from the inside out, you don't know wisdom. You won't have wisdom. All you have is folly without Jesus Christ rescuing us from what? What do we need to be rescued from the most? Sin and self. And until he rescues us from us and the sin that is inside of us and the broken nature that we have, until he transforms us and wakes us up from our slumber, we can't ever truly have and know wisdom. And you know why that is? Because of what Colossians 2, 3 says. It says, in him is the fullness of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom isn't a thing. Wisdom is a person. And until you've been rescued by that person, and until you walk in a relationship, a personal day-by-day, moment-by-moment relationship, it's in Christ these things are hidden. It's in Him that we find them. And so I encourage you today, church, seek Jesus. Because the only way you're going to get through this life where death is unavoidable and you've got this life that is so unpredictable, the only way we're going to navigate it with hope is with Jesus. Do you know him? Has he saved you? Has he transformed you? Are you walking moment by moment, day by day, seeking his face, dying so that he can live in and through you? Because folks, without Jesus, you're not really ready to face life and you're certainly not ready to face death. But with him, all of that changes. Father, we thank you. That, Lord, today you remind us that there is hope for the living. Lord, it's not too late. We can turn. We can repent. We can follow you with our whole hearts. And I pray that today if there's someone here that needs you as Lord and Savior, they would respond in this moment to seek the forgiveness of sins and to believe on you for their righteousness, trusting that you died for them. You were buried and you rose again. You took their sin. Lord, I pray that today they would follow you. And Lord, for those of us that know you as Lord and Savior, Lord, we've prayed to ask your forgiveness and we've prayed and said that we are following you. But Lord, in so many ways, this journey, we get held up with circumstances and our own dreams and our own goals. And and Father, I just pray that we would all return in this moment to the place where we say to you, I trust you with all of my life, with life, with death, It's in your hands, and I trust you, Jesus. For, Lord, many in this room are struggling to trust you with those things today. And, God, they won't find rest, and they won't find peace, and they won't find your blessing and the joy that you have intended until they're rescued, until they walk with you moment by moment. So, Father, meet us here. And, Lord, I pray that today as we go into this time of invitation, if there are people that want to join this fellowship, they'll come. If there are people that have prayed to receive you today, that they'll come and share with the world what you've done in their life. And, Lord, we're asking you to meet us and to change us and to help us in Jesus' name. Amen.